Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. So just a quick message on sponsorship before we get into it. Um, well, actually, no, there is no sponsorship for this podcast, and there never will be. Uh, I am not going to run ads on this show ever, except for, well, except for advertising things that I'm working on. Uh, I'll explain why in future podcasts, but in a nutshell, I just don't really think, I, I don't really support the current advertising model, and I think it does cause more harm than good in some ways. But... If you do want to support this podcast, head to patreon.com slash talkoftoday and become my patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can help support this podcast and make it happen. I'm currently working a few days a week to support myself while I uh, run this podcast and pursue other things, which I'm about to talk about. So your support would really, really help me out because I'd love to work on them full time. I haven't quite explained the motivations behind starting this podcast just yet, but I've got an episode coming up where I'll talk about it in more detail. But here's just a brief summary. I'd like to have a structured and fun way of learning more about the developments that are shaping the world we live in, and to spread the word about a lofty goal of mine. Basically, I want us to create a digital country for the people of the world and use it as a means of bringing everyone up to a level playing field, advocating for global interests, and as a way of delivering access to basic needs and human rights. If you want to find out what on earth I'm actually talking about, head to www.globalcitizenship.today or uh, just head to talkfortoday.com and links will be in the show notes. So just one more thing before I get into it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of getting shit done. I've downloaded plenty of to-do list apps and I've bought diaries and productivity planners to try and make myself more productive, but I've never stuck with any of them. And you know, the best to-do list is the one that you actually use. So what I've come up with is a Chrome extension that causes my daily plan to pop up every time I open up a new tab. I probably open up hundreds of tabs a day, so having my to-do list pop up every time I open up a new tab has worked wonders for my productivity, as I see what I have to do that day instead of going straight to Facebook or Reddit, and possibly losing hours of my life scrolling through who knows what. So the features include a to-do list for the day, a space to write what I'm grateful for because expressing gratitude daily has been shown to increase overall happiness, a space to take notes, a thought-provoking quote of the day, uh, a universal task list so I can just get whatever I need to do uh, that's in my head onto some list that I can allocate to a day later, and finally, a place for tracking. So as the saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. So there's a section of the page that is dedicated to tracking things that I think are important like sleep, exercise, whether or not I meditated, and all that fun stuff. The end goal is to be able to run some analytics on my life and see what causes me to be more productive or whatever. An easy example would be to see how my sleep correlates with my daily productivity score or coffee consumption. Down the track, you'll be able to track whatever you want, but right now, uh, you're only limited to the, uh, the stock items on the list. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, or if you just want to be more productive, check it out. I'd love some feedback, and it's free. It will be available on the Chrome Store later on this week. Uh, right now, it is May the third, uh, so within the next few days, it will be up. So head to talkoftoday.com or any of the social media channels that we've got going on, and you'll find links to it there. I actually I haven't come up with a name for it yet. I, uh, I have no idea what I'm going to call this thing yet, but it's basically like a digital diary or a personal productivity 
thing. I'm thinking maybe LiveTab. So we will see. But yeah, go and check it out if you want to try it. And let's get some shit done. Alrighty, now on to the show. Today, we're talking about the blockchain. The blockchain is the technology that underpins Bitcoin, the infamous cryptocurrency that was made famous by its widespread use among drug dealers, but has steadily increased in popularity due to the multitude of benefits of using a digital currency in a globalized world. However, its applications are not just limited to digital currencies. The blockchain can be used to make your digital identity more secure, decentralize data storage, facilitate secure e-voting, and even completely change organizational structures, to name just a few things. So what is it? The Economist has described it as the trust machine, an incorruptible digital ledger of economic transactions that can be programmed to record not just financial transactions, but virtually everything of value. The implications of it are vast, and its widespread implementation could transform society. In this episode, I'm joined by Kari Bumaya, author of the book Blockchain, Rethinking Macroeconomic Policy and Economic Theory, which was published earlier this year. Kari is a researcher, lecturer, writer, technology consultant, and all-around badass. He's been writing and teaching on subjects relating to the blockchain, complexity economics, and the effects of technological change on society, with some of his work being featured in Wired Magazine and the Harvard Business Review. In our conversation, we talk about the blockchain and some of its macroeconomic implications, complexity economics, and what it is to be a generalist. I had a great time chatting with Kari, as you might be able to tell during the interview. So I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. And I present to you my conversation with Kari Bumaya. So I'm Kari. I'm Kari Bumaya. Um, I run the uh, research branch at a startup called youchange.co, uh, which is based in Paris and France. Um, and I came to this position through a very unique set of zigzag kind of a route. So um, I'm actually trained as a marine engineer. My degree is in marine engineering and naval architecture. Um, and I worked as a marine engineer for a couple of years and realized that I'm not a very good engineer. Um, I, I like studying about it, but when it actually came to doing the job, I just found it extremely tedious. Um, I also come from a military family. So um, I decided I, I was 22 or 23, I can't remember, yeah, 23, I think. And I said, you know what, I want to go and get a taste of adventure and, and, and do something else apart from, you know, fixing uh, two-stroke engines on ships. So uh, I came to France in 2006 and I signed up with the French Foreign Legion and I spent five years with them, um, uh, during which I was deployed most of the time outside of France. So I spent uh, very little time actually within the country. I was almost, almost uh, half the time I was outside. Uh, and that experience was pretty uh, critical for me because what it helped me do is ask a lot of questions about all these kind of different engagements I was um, part of. And I started asking myself, you know, why are we doing this? Um, and every time I asked that question, I always found that there was some kind of economic uh, consequence attached to it. There's always a gigantic question of, of, of resources or money, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I decided I needed to kind of understand this properly because I had got to the point that no matter how many books I read, I still realized I needed some kind of structure. Um, and so I left the army in 2011 and went back to school. I went to business school this time. Um, I went to Grenoble Ecole de Management, which is a business school in France. And I got a master's in, in international business. Um, and I took to economics like official water, you could say. It was just something that had really interested me. Uh, but I still found a lot of the explanations lacking. 
So, for example, they taught you how to invest money and how to, to play around with it and make investments and you know trace it and everything else. But at the same time, they never paid any attention to how money was actually created. You know, what was the actual origin of it and why does it work this way? Um, there was very little importance given to something which is known as um, fractional banking, which is the, the, the mechanism through which money is actually produced today. And I found that a bit um, irritating. So in order to overcome that, that, that issue, I decided to do something um, a bit reckless. I decided to sacrifice my social life to learning on the side. <laughs> um, and so I spent a lot of time. I got a job at Michelin. I used to work as a market intelligence guy, and then I started working in finance. Um, and during my free time, I'd sit and read about, you know, how uh, fractional banking system works. And I just started, it's made less and less sense to me the more I read about it. Uh, as I started looking for alternatives, uh, I came across this paper, which was published in 2008, called Bitcoin. And um, when I read it the first time, I didn't understand a word of it, because uh, it was just like a completely <laughs> different domain. <laughs> it had references to game theory and cryptography and, and computer science, and these were not subjects that I knew. So I took it as a bit of a personal affront, uh, kind of saying like, <laughs> How dare they? How come I can't understand Challenge this? accepted. Pretty much. So I dedicated, uh, I think, around two or three months just kind of sparsing that paper and trying to understand it paragraph by paragraph. And when I finally came to the realization of what, what had been written, so this was in 2012, by the way, um, I was like, oh, my God, you know, how come people aren't talking about this? This is a very, very important subject from so many different uh, points of view. Uh, and so I wrote a, a paper about it uh, for the people with whom I was working because they were all, in, you know, very smart people working in market intelligence and finance. Uh, and no one read it. <laughs> they said, yeah, <laughs> nice idea. But no one actually read it, except this one person who uh, was running a TEDx uh, event at the place I was working. So he said, found it interesting, invited me to come and give a TED presentation. It was the first TEDx that they were organizing in that city. Um, and I gave it. And from there, you know, things started taking on a bit more um, momentum, you could say. Um, I got invited to write about it for a couple of magazines. So I wrote an article for Wired magazine and followed up by another one, Howard Business Review. Um, and generally, over a period of time, it became more of an obsession rather than just a side pro project that I was working on. What are you referring to when you say it became an obsession? Uh, obsession? Was it uh, Bitcoin itself? Uh, yeah, at the beginning, it was about the Bitcoin, but um, thankfully, I had a, a, a decent understanding of economics. And I found that even though the technology is so important and, you know, the currency Bitcoin is definitely something worth exploring and, and using uh, and useful in so many, so many different areas today, especially in different kinds of countries which have massive monetary and fiscal issues, um, for the large part, uh, it can't be just amalgamated with the existing financial system. And this is a very key point that I'd like to underline because um, the book that I wrote, which I'll speak about in a second, um, that's one of the key tenets which we have to take into so consideration. What what you mean is we can't just take Bitcoin and then throw it into the mix with all of the other currencies? You can, but uh, the fundamental issue is trust. And what we're looking for is actually network effects, which is like this kind of currency should be used by a large populace. And not just by you know a certain coterie of people. Today it's a bit fringe. Mm -hmm. It's an expanding um, 
user base that there's no doubt about that and you can check that up um, by the, the the market cap and the volume of how many bitcoins are being used today but, but at the same time it's not large scale you can still go this is 2017 now so this paper's been out there for almost a decade right now um, and you can still go out in, 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 in on the streets and you can ask people and you'll be lucky if 25% of the people you talk to even know the word Bitcoin. Mm. So, so let's, can you just break down just very briefly, uh, which <laughs> might be a little bit difficult, but what uh, is Bitcoin and how does it differ from other currencies? Right. So if you look at regular currencies, which are what we call as fiat currencies, um, they're essentially based on um, a system of debt. So um, I'll give you a very simple example. You go to your bank and you open an account and you throw in um, $10,000. Okay? And what the bank does is they, they do something which is known as fractional banking in which, yes, they have $10,000 of your, of your dollars and that's there on your computer screen and that's what you see on your balance. But the bank can then lend money based on that $10,000. So it only needs to keep a fraction of it, hence the name fractional banking. Um, they put 10% of that. I'm just giving an arbitrary number. Uh, so 10% of that. And the remaining 9,000 that's left, they can now lend out to other people. So a guy like me comes up and I say, okay, I need you know, somewhere around 9,000 euros, uh, dollars, sorry, uh, to buy a boat. Um, I don't know what I'm gonna do with a boat in Paris, but let's go with a boat. <laughs> Um, and they say, okay, fine. And now they take the 9,000, which is actually from your account, and they transfer it to me. And in doing so, they've actually increased their assets by 9,000 because I didn't have any assets, remember? I haven't put anything inside over there. So now I owe them 9,000. And so from that 9,000, which is in my account, another person's going to come and they say, like, well, I need some money as well. And they keep another 10%, so that's 900, and they loan out 8,100. And they keep doing this and it multiplies, right? So that's that's the whole fractional reserve banking methodology. Now, I've, of course, vulgarized it and made it very, very simplistic in that explanation. Um, there are, you know, many more things that are involved in it in terms of capital controls and all of those things. But this is essentially the way that money is actually created. Um, it's created in a very um, hierarchical kind of a way with the central bank um, operating along with the government in terms of exchanging bonds um, and actually determining how much money actually needs to be created. And then once that's done, it gets distributed from the central banks to the commercial banks. So it's a very pyramidical kind of an organization. Um, Bitcoin, on the other hand, does not work that way. Um, the money production system of Bitcoin is, is it's a much more complex kind of a subject. And we can spend the whole podcast just talking about that. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I don't want to you know, geek out right now. Uh, but... In Bitcoin, the production system is based on the way that um, um, people actually are using the money and what they're doing in order to, to, to make it. So that's where you have different kinds of people who are involved in it, like miners who are performing a certain kind of activity. And when you do this activity, you earn the Bitcoin. And rather than having like this unstoppable or, um, you know, there's, there's no limit on the quantity of fiat currency that you can make. But with Bitcoin, the money supply is already fixed. So there's only 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be mined. And from that 21 million, what's happening is these miners are actually performing certain kinds of operations. And these operations do have a use. They're actually validating transactions which people are doing. And every time they perform this activity, they can jump inside this reservoir and take out a little bit. They get rewarded for it. And in this it, way, they put... It costs them 
uh, well, the compu- computers uh, run the mining process, and of course, these yeah. things require energy, and hence they should be remunerated in some way. Absolutely. So that's why they're getting paid for it. They're not just, it's not just covering their energy costs and their bandwidth costs. I mean, those, those charges are, you know, pretty small per se. Um, the main thing that they're doing is they, they are um, ensuring that people make transactions and these transactions are validated. And this is the main effort that they're putting, you know, the reason that they're doing all of this is in order to ensure that those transactions are solid that there's no double spending going on, that there's no one jumping in and hacking this stuff because it's all digital, right? It's, 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 it's on the internet. Um, so it's an internet money which is fabricated on a much more democratic principle uh, that is fabricated to be much more distributed and decentralized, um, which is in direct uh, opposition to the way that we have money being produced in uh, the fiat system. Now, it's built on, would you call it a technology? Would you call the uh, the blockchain a technology or it's a, how would you describe it? And uh, how did that lead you to writing your book? Ah, okay. So um, the blockchain is more of a protocol. So um, I'll break it down and I'll put it down in, in terms of something which everyone is probably uh, already knows about. So a protocol is a bit like uh, manners. Okay, so if I say hi, Sam, you normally say hi back, right? Definitely. Normally, <laughs> <laughs> normally. Uh, and and that's 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 essentially a protocol. It's not like a fixed rule or anything, but it's just a way that we communicate, right? And, and so it's a protocol of communication. And um, what they found was back in the the mid seventies when they were making the internet, that they needed to find a protocol for the way computers could talk, because they were exchanging, you know information between them and when they first started making the internet they say okay fine how do these computers need how do they need to communicate with each other and that led to something which is known as tcp ip okay transmission protocol ip is the ip address and this was invented by Surf and robert khan um and what they did was they said that okay fine if i need to send you um i don't know an email or pdf or something like that um i don't need to get onto my computer and send it directly to you what I can do is I can break up the, the this this uh, pa- this packet of data into different packets, and then if we're on a distributed network, which is what the internet is, then I can send it from my computer. Let's say my computer is A to computer B, and then to computer D, which is you. Or I can send it from computer A to computer Z, and from computer Z to you. And I'm not sending the whole document. I'm just sending like a piece of that. So when it finally comes back to you, it kind of rearranges itself in the order that it's supposed to. And then you can open it up and you can see that, okay, it's a PDF that I sent you. So this, this is essentially how the internet works. And then based on that protocol, they were able to make more specialized protocols like HTTP. Uh, we're speaking on Skype right now, so VOIP, you know, voice over IP. These are the different kinds of protocols that do specific functions in order for us to communicate. So the communication protocols. Uh, but when you come to money, uh, you can't just repeat the same process. Uh, and the reason you can't repeat the same process is because of something which is known as double spend. So if I send you an email, there is nothing stopping you from copy pasting that email and sending it out to, you know, who, how many other people you want. But if I'm sending you money and money in this case is digital money, it's just zeros and ones. Um, it's super, super important that no one can copy paste that and send it to someone else. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't mind having um, that power. Yeah, exactly. So what we do instead is we use banks. 
And banks are kind of like the intermediary. They're the, they're, they're the middle person. And what they, they're looking at is they're saying, okay, Carrie's got, um, you know, 100 euros in his account and he wants to send 50 of those euros to, to Sam. And okay, fine. Uh, yeah, he's got the money. We validate that transaction. Here's the money to Sam. Oh, and by the way, I think we'll take around 2 or 3% of that. Uh, depends. It, it can go up to 7.5 sometimes. Um, and that's what they do. That's what they, they get paid for. Um, and not to belittle what they're doing, they're doing a very important service. Okay, so it's, it's they're not just sending the money. They're also doing other things like they're verifying that it's not um, um, money laundering related or they, they do something which is known as KYC, which is know your customer. And they, want, they need to ensure that it's not going for a terrorist organization and stuff like that. So this is the reason why we pay them um, and we pay them a lot. And uh, it makes no sense because um, in any kind of capitalistic system, you've got so much competition, except in currency. For some reason, currency is off the table. You know, it's only supposed to be done by these people over here. So that's where the idea for Bitcoin came. Um, and they said that, why can't we use the same kind of technology which makes the Internet work to decentralize communication? Why can't we do the same thing for transferring value, you know, money in this case? And they started making a protocol which is known as the blockchain. So that's essentially the, the underlying tech which makes this work. That's why I call it a, a protocol. And it does essentially that. It does this job in which we are staking money from, from my account, but instead of using a bank to transfer it to your account, the other people who are within the, the network, they are the ones who are taking on the responsibility of saying, yes, I will transfer this, this sum to this person. Now, this is the part where you need to ensure that you have to make sure that they're not doing double spend. And that's what the miners are doing. The miners are actually validating it. So when you send the money, you kind of do it the same way that you send an email. You sign it, right? You sign it when you send an email or a check. You sign it with a signature. So you're doing that. And that's where the cryptography part comes in. And these guys look at it. They say, okay, fine. We know that this is coming from this account. It's going to that account. Um, they perform a certain number of operations, which is the mining operation, you could say, in order to validate the transaction. And for that, you know, you can you can pay them a little bit. You can give them a tip if you want. That's up to you. And essentially, once it's all done, they put this transaction into a block because you want to have a hierarchy of the blocks so that you can see what time it happened at. The timing is very important. And once this block is, you know, fills up because it's based on a certain size of a data structure, once it gets filled up, then they validate the entire block. And so you've got this ledger of all these blocks with all the transactions inside of it. These transactions have been validated. You've received the money and you receive the money really fast. You like receive it on like, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes or maybe an hour, whatever. Uh, unlike with a regular bank where you've got to wait like two or three days sometimes. Um, and I've had issues even in, even today, today's day and age, which is a bit weird. And so that's why it's called the blockchain, because it is a chain of blocks. It is a chain of blocks within which you find all these transactions that have been validated and put inside in a sequence. And at the same time, it's also a ledger. It's a shared ledger, which means that any person who's within this, this network, they can go inside over there and they can look and they can see when the transactions happened. And this is a very key issue because what it also helps you do in that case is um, if you want to, let's say you're like a super hacker, okay, and you want to go inside the, the the blockchain and change the address from one transaction to another and say, send that money to me. Because of the fact that each and every transaction is timestamped, 
not only do you have to break the encryption and go there and change the transaction that you want, you've also got to adjust it for each and every transaction before that in that block and the block before that and the block before that. So it becomes increasingly harder as time goes on, which is why it's so robust. So now you've got a system for transferring money, which doesn't require a bank. Okay, It's completely decentralized. It's democratic. It's much more secure. It's much more faster. So is it any surprise that the banks are now investing money in this technology, <laughs> trying to figure out how they can use it? Not so is that all. clear? I mean, yeah, yeah, no, that that, that, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And the uh, the applications are not just limited to uh, money. And I guess that might be a a good way to segue into why you wrote your book. Because I mean, even though even though money is fundamental to uh, yeah. society's function, um, there's a lot of other ways in which the blockchain can be utilized. So what? Uh, brought you to i mean writing a book is no uh, you don't just do that on a whim and i remember the other week when we skyped uh you you said that when you uh started writing you you turned into batman because <laughs> you, you gave up the social life and you'd only come out at night yeah i mean no, no I, I think social life's now become some kind of an interesting concept <laughs> um i wouldn't mind going and experimenting with it once in a while um yeah, so the, the, the book actually came out because um, I had a big problem with what was going on. Uh, f- firstly, I'm not technically qualified to write a book about how the blockchain should be made. So I can't really code a blockchain, but I understand enough of it to see how it can be used. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision. I said, OK, fine, I'm not going to spend the next few years of my line of my life learning how to code in you know, Java or whatever so that I can start making products on the blockchain. I think there are people who are eminently qualified for it, very smart, very hardworking people. Um, my role is going to be more in terms of seeing how it can be used and what are the 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 the, the obstacles which people have to deal with. And more importantly, how do we ensure that this is an antidote to a lot of the economic malaise that we have today? So with that objective, I said, okay, fine. Um, I can see people are using the blockchain for different kinds of things. They're making it easier to send money through to other people. They, they're starting to have a real impact on the remittances market um, combined with something which is known as smart contracts. And I can explain that if you want as well. Uh, they're automating a lot of financial services. Um, this is great. You know, this is excellent. But what about the implications of this? What about the implications when we're thinking about how can these two different types of monies exist together? What are the implications in terms of the way governments actually make their policies? And the way that monetary policy is made and fiscal policy is made, can the blockchain play a role over there? Should we even be considering it? And if we are considering it, then in what context are we are we going to make that consideration? So I was a bit disappointed because I found that uh, mo- there was too much attention being given to the applications, uh, but not enough to, to the implications. And when I started asking people questions about it, um, I found very um, I found answers which were quite uh, inconsequential. So I said, okay, fine, why don't I, I focus on that? And I'd, I'd been researching about it for a couple of years, you know, just doing this on the side. And I got a call from Springer, the academic publishing company, because they had read one of my papers or my articles, I can't remember. Um, and they were interested in doing a series of articles for, for the blockchain. Um, and so they were contacting different people who had written stuff so that they could contribute. And they called me up and they asked me if I'd be interested. And I, I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, and when they asked me what I could write about, I explained a couple of my ideas, and it was actually them who proposed that I write a book. 
because they found that what I was trying to, to convey as a message was too broad for one single article or even a series of articles. Um, so yeah, that's that it kind of happened. <laughs> yeah, and I can tell, I can really understand why that might be the case when you you know look at the title. I mean, you don't talk about small things. Uh, you know, if we're talking about like you know capitalism itself just changing radically and perhaps i think we discussed it the other day it might be even destroying itself in one way in yeah, it one is. way of looking at it um, so could you just oh, definitely so what uh are the implications <laughs> so how how could um cap how could the blockchain facilitate uh well such radical change or yeah what is the the overall i mean i mean I, i'd hate to try and put you on the spot to try and summarize you know your book in uh in a couple of sentences but uh you know, let's give it a go. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, we'll start with the fundamentals. I mean, essentially, forget about everything about the technical aspects and the encryption and everything else about the blockchain or smart contracts. What the blockchain is more than anything else is an engine of transparency. Okay, so transparency is very, very important today because firstly, um, in the current um, capitalistic system that we have, we have transparency that is essentially one-sided in which governments and banks seem to have an extreme amount of information about what we're doing. And, you know, your financial transactions say a lot more about you than what you post on Facebook. Like you can make out a person's real profile if you see what they're doing with their money. And secondly, um, because of all the changes that have happened in the past couple of years, especially after the, 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 the great financial crisis, there is a concept of trust. So you've got transparency and trust, and these are the two main things which uh, the blockchain is trying to address. Okay, when you have transparency, what it allows you to do is it lets you seize things which are happening within a, any kind of a system. Um, to make it clear, you have to put in a certain amount of effort. So that's like the, the delta between transparency and clarity. But the blockchain is essentially and, an instrument. Sorry, by delta, that, uh, you mean the, the difference in or the change in? Yes, yes, quite. Um, so... You know, you, you've got this kind of, uh, you've got a tool that allows you to look at things in a very transparent kind of a manner. Uh, but that does not mean that just because you have a tool, that the system's going to change. You know, a tool is a tool. It depends how you use it. And one of the, the points that I make, even though the, the book's title is the blockchain alternative, so, you know, <laughs> the word blockchain is in the title. One of the points that I make in the book is do not consider this, this technology or this tool as some kind of panacea. It's not going to change everything. It's going to give you an ability to do something better. But what is it you want to do? And if you want to understand that, then you have to understand the capitalistic system. And the capitalistic system today um, is suffering in terms of the trust that it has. It is suffering in terms of the way that it is structured. It is suffering in, 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 in the way that it treats people. And you've got all these different kinds of things that come into it, which is related to inequality, excessive debt levels, um, the way that um, you've got a cautery, you've got a, a very small oligopoly of, of bankers who essentially run the entire financial system. And my entire thesis is the fact that this structure is starting to get more and more fractured today because of technology. So in the book, I talk about, you know, all the different kinds of fintech technologies, um, all the fintechs. Fintech today is related to um, machine learning, uh, deep learning, natural language processing, artificial intelligence, or even artificial general intelligence, if you want to look at it that way. And finally, the blockchain. So I, I explain how these five technologies are fragmenting the entire financial sector. And as a result of this fragmentation, there's a power struggle that's going on. 
the structure is getting more and more distributed. And because it's getting more and more distributed, I say that the blockchain is something that is more suited to operate in this kind of a, of a system. And secondly, there's the issue of trust in which we are now seeing a, a change in the balance of power in which before people, you know, they inherently believed in going to financial services and going to banks and stuff like that. I trace the history of why we think about it that way and how the fact that you've now got a new kind of alternative in the form of blockchain or Ethereum, which are, you know, other ways in which you can transfer value is fundamentally changing the the the, the relationship that people have with a capitalistic system. I remember reading, I think it was on the Ethereum website that, you know, the blockchain could, instead of needing, you know, insurance companies or, you know, banks or all this, it could all be facilitated through the blockchain and even governments mm-hmm. through things called or, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations or decentralized yeah. collaborative organizations. Um, could you talk yeah. on um, what those are uh, briefly? Yeah. So um, for that, I'll, I'll just give a brief introduction to smart contracts. Um, so remember, we, we had spoken about TCP/IP, mm-hmm. um, and TCP/IP is like it's like that underlying protocol in which you know communication is happening. Now, what people made after that were apps, and an app. What is an app? An app is a very simple thing. It is something that you could imagine it kind of rests on you know a protocol like HTTP or whatever. And when you go there and you press a button or you put some kind of input, it gives you an output, right? So it's programmable. It's a little bit of it's a little piece of a program that's kind of sitting on a protocol which does things when you tell it to do it. And you can program this stuff. Now, the smart contract is kind of like the sister image of that, but for the blockchain. So on one side you have TCP IP with the app sitting on top of it. On the other side, you've got the blockchain with the smart contract sitting on top of it. And it's doing pretty much the same thing. You tell it to do something and it does it at the right time based on the input that you give it. Uh, and that's essentially the way that Smart contracts are automating a lot of these, you know, financial um, operations. So you can look at it in terms of like, let's say that you and I decide to engage in the exchange of a car and I want to buy your car. Um, And we decide that, okay, fine, let's write up a little contract that I'm going to send you uh, $5,000 on this date. And the moment that you receive it in your bank account, the ownership of the car gets transferred to me. Now, normally to do something like that, we go through an intermediary or a third person. Because I don't trust you and you don't trust me. You know, what's there to say that if I send you to 5,000 and you just scoot away after that, then I'm, then I'm stuck there with no car and 5,000 euros less. <laughs> so we, we use an intermediary and we go to the intermediary and we say, listen, we'll pay you a couple of hundred extra if you hold the money and the deeds. And once the exchange is made, you give the deeds to him and you give the, the, the money to this person. But with the smart contract, you can automate that. I don't need to go to the third person and pay them a little bit extra. All I do is I can code the contract that we have agreed upon. And when I make the transfer and the transfer is, you know, is accepted in, into your account, immediately the, the deeds are sent to me. So now I have the ownership of the car, right? And so this is, this is a very simplistic, uh, simple example, but something that is being worked on today. Uh, in terms of decentralizing the entire concept of, 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 of doing financial exchange, right? So that's what the smart contracts do. And uh, you can scale this. You can scale it to a much higher level in which you can have a decentralized autonomous organization, which is essentially, you know, a whole bunch of the smart contracts weren't working in unison or working in sequential kind of ways that if one thing does, there is a certain kind of an action, the consequence will trigger off another event in another smart contract and so on and so forth. 
And so they started experimenting with this and, you know, they said, okay, can we actually make an entire company work this way? Because a lot of companies, I mean, there's a lot of administrative, there's a lot of, um, you know, paperwork that's going on. There's a lot of operational stuff. And today you've got people um, sitting and doing those, those, those jobs. And they said, okay, can we automate that? Because if I have a contract with a supplier, well, then if I've already sent the, the order, then once the money is done, they should be able to send it back to me. You know, all those different kinds of things. And so they essentially created a decentralized organization that can do that. Um, of course, there were some issues with that, with the crowdfunding thing. So I think you've heard about what happened with Ethereum and the DAO that was last year. Um, but that was not actually a fault of the the technology. It was a human error. Like they hadn't they hadn't coded one aspect of the the smart contract in the way that it should be done. And some guy managed to kind of find that flaw and, you know, being human, which is what we, he tried to exploit it. Uh, I mean, he should have gone and just reported it and been like a good team player, but he didn't. He tried to to exploit it. Um, and so he started getting a lot of the funds. But I mean, they, they were able to kind of uh, figure out and stop that problem. Um, so people shouldn't forget that this is a very young technology so you know it, it, it's bound to have yeah, a few shit happens cock-ups here and, there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and more recently one of the, the the principal people who's been involved in cryptography for for a while ralph merkel um so you know public key cryptography he's made immense contributions to that um, um he he started looking at the concept of the dao and he said, how can we think about having a democratic system that's based on it? So he's used, um, you know, inputs that come from people like Robin Hanson. Robin Hanson is, is a very well-known uh, economist um, in which they, they started saying that how can the, the entire concept of, uh, of governance and democratic governance be used or be um, based on DAOs? And so they mix up elements of something which is known as prediction markets. And what they want to do is have people who are the best suited to make a decision in terms of electing the right person, make that decision, but at the same time, um, do it in such a way that there's an incentive for them to do it. But at the same time, they're not getting biased because of their own um, agendas. So he's written a paper about it, which came out in mid 2016. Um, my suggestion would be to actually get hold of that paper. Yeah, and do, you, go do you have it. to know what it's called? Um, oh. Whatever it is, it'll be for those listening. This paper will be listed in the show notes. So just um, go to the website and check it out. But yeah, no, that that sounds great. I mean, the the idea of a uh, you know uh, fixing. Uh, the democratic process sounds pretty appealing, especially when it comes to making decisions based upon the facts at hand and, uh, uh, you know, putting the people who are best placed to make those decisions um, in position. So I think we, we had a conversation on voting the other day. We might, we might, we might touch on that. Yeah. He, he makes some really good points actually with regards to that. I mean, um, you wouldn't go to um, someone who's unqualified to fix your teeth or to get your car repaired, you, you need to that. make sure that... Oh, imagine having <laughs> anyone near your, you know, oh, yep, just going to take this wisdom tooth out. Oops. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you've got... There's so much importance that's given to for people to do a lot of specific tasks. Um, but when you look at the concept of actually electing someone to, 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 to run your, your country, um, that's a very complex job. 
because you've got to understand, you know, stuff which is related to economics. You've got to understand whether this person is actually going to do what he's going to say. Um, and you don't even know that once he, if he gets into power or she gets into power, whether they're going to execute what they were supposed to do. And, in, you know, so it's, it's a very complex kind of thing to, to think about. And there are people who are qualified to do it. So essentially, Merkel's idea is to kind of use the DAO in order to do something like that. Um, and uh, that's something which I haven't addressed in my book. Mm-hmm. So my book is more about the concept of, of capitalism and how we can innovate capitalism using the blockchain to, to do certain kinds of things, to apply certain kinds of policies which have been um, developed in the past. But, you know, now we've got an instrument that can help us do it. And more importantly, what does this actually mean in the way that we think about economics as a subject? So my final chapter is, is essentially, you know, the book subtitle, for example, is saying rethinking macroeconomic policy and economic theory. And the final chapter is dedicated to something which is known as complexity economics. So can you talk about uh, complexity economics and how it uh, differs uh, or moves away from traditional neoclassical economics and why this change is important moving forward? Yeah. So there is um, there are two theories today which govern um, neoclassical economics. Okay. And the first one is efficient markets hypothesis, and the second is rational expectations theory. And rational expectations theory works on this. Essentially, the definition says that um, agents who are within an economic system, um, they have access to pretty much all the information that they need when they look at the stock price. So the stock price of of a stock kind of embodies all the market knowledge that's inside over there. And then based on this understanding, the, the agents make rational decisions okay I'm, I'm using the inverted commas yeah um they make rational decisions um and so even if they make a bad decision it's okay because uh, the market is essentially in a state of equilibrium so one bad decision is going to be offset by a good decision so that means that the actual natural state of an economy is one of equilibrium uh, it might go up and down a little bit, but its natural state is that of equilibrium. So these two theories kind of work in conjunction with each other. But if you look at reality, you find that it is absolutely not like this. First of all, what the hell is rational? Who is it rational to whom? Is it rational to you? Is it rational to me? Um, one of the best examples of rational, being rational is philanthropy. And I'm not talking about philanthropy in the context of people getting a tax break when they give money to a charity. I'm talking about people who are, you know, working hard, middle class, or maybe even lower than middle class, still helping other people and giving money away because they think that, you know, they need to do it. So does that sound rational? From an economic perspective, it doesn't make any sense, but people still do it. So that's just one example about my problem with (laughs) rational expectations. Um, The second one is with regards to equilibrium Um, and equilibrium. if you look at this is, uh, any capitalistic system today, it's predicated on the concept of growth. So, you know, you've got a company. What are you trying to do with the company? You're trying to grow. You're trying to get more clients. You're trying to expand into a new market. Um, you're trying to um, lay people off so that you can still grow and maintain your, your margins. Uh, and even if you think you're happy, that you like the way your company is and you don't want to grow and you're just happy to kind of keep the ship uh, sailing on this path, the competition around you is going to force you to change. So if you look at it from that perspective, you realize that the natural state of an economy is not equilibrium, it's entropic. 
So it's constantly changing. But if you look at the way that we, we make our policies and the models that we use to make our policies, uh, there's something which is known as DSGE models, uh, dynamic stochastic um, general equilibrium models. And they're predicated on these on these two theories, right? They're predicated on this. Yeah, it gets much more complicated. They put you know, <laughs> was, a lot of things aside. Sorry, guys. I've, I just made a face basically saying, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I don't want to get into that because it's, it's yeah, a Yeah, no, it's, no, it's, fair it's, enough. <laughs> it, it's, but, it, I'm, it's um, I've just it's so funny. I've just started reading a a book uh, on this topic uh, that our you know a, a friend of both of ours, Brendan Markitala, who's I've also interviewed, who he put it in my hands, and it's called uh, the Origin of Wealth. And ah, I have never, okay. I've learned more from this book in like I've read eighty pages. I've learned more from this book than a year and okay. a half of economics education at you know at university. And yeah, so where were you going? Yeah, no, it's, that, that is an excellent book. And to anyone who's listening to this, I would also suggest if you really want to understand capitalistic systems, read the history. Um, you know, you, you've got to get the history right because a lot of the times we don't understand what's going on, what's in front of us, is because we don't know how it came into that shape. And so you've just hit the stark realization of this is the status quo, but how did the status quo come into place? So book for that is called The Relentless Revolution by, um, I think it's Joyce Appleby, if I'm not wrong. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a read. I think it's a good 700, 800 pages. Uh, but it's very well written. And I, I, it, 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 it just makes things so much more clearer when you read it that way. And it's written like a story. She's a historian, an economic historian. So once we start looking at the way that the economy is based on, you know, something which is extremely dynamic that is constantly changing and that what's really important is not just the macro and the micro level interactions, but also the meso level interactions, which is the way one agent is, you know, communicating or exchanging with another. That's when you, you think about it and you say, okay, we can't really carry on with DSGE models. What we need to start thinking about are models that are based on this, this, this concept of entropy. And complexity economics is actually made perfectly for that. So the origin of complexity economics is really interesting. In the Santa Fe Institute back in the late 80s or the early 90s, um, there were a bunch of economists who met a bunch of uh, theoretical physicists, or um, yeah, let's just say physicists. And they were essentially having this very friendly debate in which the, the physicists were saying, you guys are crazy, you know, you economists, you guys keep thinking in terms of equilibrium. And the economists were saying the opposite, and they're like, oh, you guys are crazy because you always think in terms of chaos and, and, and entropic systems. And when they kind of fused these two ideas together, what nucleated was complexity economics, in which they said, why don't we use the models that have been made by these physicists um, to, to measure what happens when you kind of bombard two particles together? You know, there's a lot of complex stuff that comes out. So how do you use those kind of statistical models to measure the way people are actually exchanging value within an economy. So that's that's kind of like the way that you had that that, that amalgamation of those two fields. Um, there's a fantastic book for that, which is known uh, Complexity and the Economy, written by Brian Arthur. That was, I think, the first book that I read about uh, complexity economics. And once you start getting into that, you realize that the concept of economics today is moving from, you know, these very beautiful mathematized models which have been made by people for for the past 70 or 80 years 
uh, and it's moving more and more towards complexity and we're starting to sorry just to interject but one of the issues with those models was that even though the maths was brilliant the underlying assumptions were just completely wrong so as nice as the maths was it was useless yeah, kind of. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say useless, but yeah, it's based on like. Uh, and sorry, people I, have written sorry about. the economists out there. I uh, don't mean to disparage. No, but there's, there's people have written about it. The the guy who is the actual, um, uh, I think he's become the, the chief economist of the World Bank recently, uh, wrote a paper about that. He calls it Chameleons, and in which he says how math, maths is used to masquerade economics as an actual science. But because of the very fundamentals being wrong, he's like, you can make these beautiful models, but they have no relationship to reality. Uh, that, that's not to say that there is no equilibrium in an economic system. There is equilibrium, but it's a temporary phase. Like, you know, things will be moving around and then it will kind of quiet down. But it's a temporary phase and then it goes back into moving around again. And th- th- this is the concept which people have to kind of wrap their heads around. So th- this is essentially the, the field of complexity economics. We're seeing more and more um, influence right now from evolutionary behavior. Uh, and the, the, the field of complex science is essentially moving into a much more qualitative side as well, in which people are looking at the way how people interact. So there's a lot of um, social cognitive neuroscience, behavioral um, studies which are going on in, in order to find stuff like emergent behaviors, how can people interact between themselves in like small groups? How do you find emergent patterns that so, come out? Yeah, what is a, an emergent property of a system? Uh, I was going to bring that up because you can take – it's basically if you were to take a reductionist perspective, so if you, if you were to break down everything to its smallest components, we yeah. using that um, methodology, we cannot uh, predict some of the uh, things that happen in the real world. And these things tend to be called emergent properties. Is that right? Uh, not really. It's it's no. essentially. I think no. you can use that as well. <laughs> no, you you could use that as well as as a working definition. But what I'm talking about in terms of emergent properties is um, when you have a group of agents kind of doing some kind of activity together, you will have. Uh, I think it's better if I give an example. Let's take leadership. So leadership today in 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 any organization is seen to be as some kind of uh, position. It is a rank that you have the authority to do so. So they mix leadership along with authority. But in in reality, when people actually work in companies, uh, you will find that there are certain people over there based on the situation that they start becoming, uh, they start exhibiting leadership kind of facets. So if you really require a helping hand with something, you're probably going to go and meet them and ask for their advice because they have right kind of experience, because they are uh, easier to get along with, because they are better coordinators. They just have the respect of the people within that that little unit over there. So then in that case, who is the actual leader? Is it the person who's got the rank or is it the person you go and depend on? You know, it's like that movie Ocean's Eleven in which um, there's, a, there's a scene in which someone asks, who do you go to in case you have a problem? And everyone thinks that it's going to be uh, George Clooney because you know it's his character who's supposed to be the the, the guy. But they all look to uh, Brad Pitt and they say, "No, we go to Rusty," even though he's 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 more like the sidekick. So you know, it's 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 kind of these kind of things. So emergent properties, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about how people actually behave and the way that they behave, which is emergent of the situation in which they are in and the kinds of interactions that they have. Okay, so that's a very simplistic uh, explanation that I'm trying to give. Um, 
And when you have any kind of complex adaptive system, you will see this, this, this happen and you will have power loss because these relationships will change over time. So then you have to look at things about the path dependence. How is one agent connected to the other? How is this relationship changing over time? Um, and this is why it's useful to, to, to look at it in this way, because that's how the economy actually works. And what complexity economics is essentially providing you is a framework for you to model these so you can make scenarios. And for me, this is why I got really interested in it is because when I looked at the blockchain, the blockchain is essentially, like I said, a transparency engine. So now you can start seeing all these transactions which are happening between these people. And for me, it's like a perfect input data into a complex economic model. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you can mix those two together, then you can start looking at the way that, okay, how, how do big institutions, if you can represent a big institution within um, a, a simulation based on complexity economics, then how do changes over there react over here? And the magic with complexity models is that you can also change the external environment. So you can change like the interest rate. And now you can simulate how these people are going to, to change. So you get more and more simulations, which mean more and more probabilities. And for me, that's a much better way of doing governance, because now as you see the external environment, the, I mean, the real environment change, you can cherry pick the right kind of simulation based on you know the input factors that you have over there. And the greater transparency you have, the greater clarity you get, because now you've done the effort. Mm -hmm. See that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to talk to you about um, two things. Uh, but before I get onto them, guys, just to those of you listening, if you're interested in uh, complexity, uh, check out uh, the Santa Fe Institute because they actually have courses running. And on the 10th of April, I'm pretty sure they've got an introduction to complexity course. Uh, that I've signed on for. So if you want to join me in uh, some digital learning, um, let's get to it and find out what uh, complexity is. Actually, so yeah, I actually want to talk to you about three things, if if possible. Uh, and mm -hmm. that is being an autodidact, so teaching yourself, uh, mm -hmm. leading with empathy, and what was the other one? I cannot remember. But uh, if you'd just like to... Talk on these topics because we, we they, were, they were brought up uh, when we skyped last time, and um, mm -hmm. I just you know in today's oh yeah it was the the third was being a generalist, which ties into autodidactism, which is you know uh, and I you know I describe this podcast as a podcast for generalists because I think that having you know a a, a small and like a sufficient understanding of you know a whole lot of things can. Um, help you make better decisions. So just like knowing like the, the kind of the important bits of something uh, across a whole variety of fields can make you better placed to navigate this very complex, complex world we live in. Uh, so do you want to talk on uh, uh, on being a generalist and uh, teaching yourself? Because from what I understand, you have uh, some firsthand experience with with this. <laughs> and you, you yeah. yourself identify as a generalist. Maybe I just I'm, I'm just putting that on you. No, no, no. I, I think I definitely do. Um, I mean, um, five years back when I graduated from business school, um, I didn't know anything about these subjects. Uh, I never thought that I was going to be writing a book on blockchain and macroeconomic policy. I mean, it's it's not really, you know, it's, it's not like writing about an adventure you had. <laughs> um, the adventure is writing the book, I guess. <laughs> This was this was something which um, I, I I literally fell into because I took the the time and the effort to to learn about it 
And I think if anyone wants to, to, to understand autodidactism, the first thing that you have to identify is whether you are frustrated and curious. Uh, and, and you have to have both in equal measure. You have to be frustrated about the fact that you don't understand something. And that could be the way that you work. It could be the reality that's in front of you. You know, whatever it is, make your choice. And then based on that, you say, okay, fine. How do I go about trying to rectify this? How do I find an explanation to it? Uh, you have to be prepared to put in a little bit of time to do it because it's not going to come easy. Um, it's like when people ask me, can you explain the blockchain in five minutes? And I'm like, no, you, I shouldn't explain it in five minutes because it's just going to lead to 30 minutes more of questions. Rather than asking me to do it in five minutes or to try and gain knowledge from 140 character tweet. Well, that's why I uh, I asked for an hour interview. <laughs> <laughs> and we still have we barely no, scratched no, the surface. No. <laughs> oh well, episode two. So you know, <laughs> so people actually have to take the time to um to to, to read about this stuff. And um, the good part is once you start reading into it, it helps you kind of identify what you want to learn about more. And that's what the, 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 the goal of an education is supposed to be. It's supposed to be able to allow you to self-learn. Um, this is something that we don't teach today. This is something which has been ignored by um, every kind of school. Um, and we're not educating people this way. And, and when and you say self-learn, do you mean to learn by yourself, but also learn about yourself through learning? So it's a... I, I don't think... Yeah, you can't, you can't really separate the two. You can't separate the two because intelligence, uh, which is very badly measured today, is something that is based on neural plasticity, right? So your brain changes every time you learn something. You, when you go to sleep, for example, the the connections in your brain are actually changing. Your dendrites are making new kinds of connections with you know the synapses. Everything's changing. So the more you get exposed to information, the more you start reading and you start forming ideas and formulating it and making it into 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 memories. Uh, you are going to change the way that you actually understand your reality, which is going to have a big influence on you because guess what? Um, it's all based on culture. So my book, for example, talks about capitalism and macroeconomics. Yes, but at its underlying, you, you all, you'll always find this underlying feeling of it in which I'm trying to explain that capitalism is a, cap, is a cultural construct. It is a very cultural issue because what you're interested in is based on the society in which you are, you are, you are raised, right? So if you go to some, some kind of Amazon jungle over there, they're not going to be thinking about the same things in profit and loss as we do over here. And do you think that they're, they're, they're crazy? No, they're not. That's just the way that they're brought up. He might think head shrinking is a great thing because, you know, in his culture, that's what's actually happening. He'd be like, my, my, dad's, my dad's not really a tough guy because my uncle's got more shrunken heads than him. And you might say, oh, my God, that's disgusting. But in his culture, that's completely normal. And so we're seeing the same thing over here. If you want to understand this culture, which is capitalism, capitalism for me is a broad frame of reference to understanding capitalistic reality. Right. So that's the way I looked at it. I looked at the reality. I found it was extremely capitalistic. I said, OK, fine. Let me understand capitalism through the lens of the blockchain. I, I chose my tool. And when I was doing that, that helped me kind of get a better understanding of what's going on. So that's essentially how autodidactism works. You have to find that question, which is a burning question. You've got to take the time and read about this stuff. If you don't understand it, guess what? Read it again. Go and ask someone who's better at it than you are. Um, YouTube is like a fantastic source for it. Um, just buy books. I, I spend a lot of money on books uh, and I have to buy the book like I need to underline oh, and take notes. And book depository. I found out about book depository this year, but 
Oh my yeah. goodness, the deals that you can get on that thing. And you know, I think it's, I like, it's like you. Christmas. Oh, possibly, yeah. but you know, when you get something in the mail and it's it's you know hard and you open, it, it's like oh, I've got a, you know, it's like a little present <laughs> and it's so affordable that you get well, oh, it's it's bad. <laughs> my, my, my my book actually was put yeah, online on on book depository yesterday. <laughs> oh, so we we skyped well, we skyped the other day. Um, basically, Carrie wasn't the first. To, you didn't get you weren't the first person to get a copy of your own book, right? What was the no, to someone else in Canada. It's the bastards. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were a, a you know, an afterthought. <laughs> yeah, he, and he sent me he sent me a picture on Facebook saying, "Hey, man, I'm reading your book." I'm like, "Where the hell is my copy?" You know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so um, so that's kind of like reading about um, that's about autodidactism. I'll come back to your point number three, which is about being a generalist. Um, being a generalist is something that works for me. If you want to be a specialist, you know what? Go for it. We really need specialists. We need people who can dedicate a significant amount of their time towards getting into the nooks and crannies of a subject. And they're necessary. Um, for and they're necessary. They're, they're necessary. I think they're, 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 they're very necessary um, in any field. You always need someone who, who's like a point of reference, right? Uh, but being a generalist is something that works for me. And what I found is, and this is really this is really coincidental, that when you look at complexity, one branch of complexity is also to see how ideas emerge. And when you look at the way that ideas emerge, you realize that it's something that is based on combinatorial systems, that an idea or an innovation actually occurs because a bunch of old technologies are kind of put together or rearranged in a new way. And thanks to that, you come up with something new. Or you use technologies that come from, like, let's say, a very specific sector, let's say, like IT, in which they're, you know, doing stuff with microchips. But an innovation that happens in material science is going to change the way that this is going to be be be, be working. Okay, so this is the way that you have combinatorial kinds of systems that happen in terms of of coming up with new kinds of ideas, and that's how innovation actually happens. So Kevin Kelly has written quite a bit about this. Um, there's another guy who, um, what's his name? Um, Arthur Kozler, sorry, not another guy. He's a very famous philosopher uh, who wrote The Act of Creation. And you find this, this formula for creativity, you could say, being repeated again and again and again. So I like it because in my job today, being an expert generalist is much more interesting and much more useful for me because I work, like I said, in, in, in tech consultancy. And a lot of times the problems are so different. So if you've got different kinds of ideas coming from different sources, you can juxtapose the ones that you require and offer a new kind of an idea as a solution to your client. So I like doing it. It's something that's helped me in terms of uh, writing this book as well. Uh, when I first got into blockchain, I didn't even know what the word complexity uh, economics was. And it was only over a period of time after like a couple of years that I fell into it because I was asking questions with relationship to this. I was asking questions about what, what are we doing with all this transparent data? How are we going to use it? What kind of system is good for it? And then when I understood fractional banking and this whole system of rational expectations theory and uh, efficient markets hypothesis, I didn't see a good marriage between the two. So I looked for an alternative and I fell across this book hidden somewhere, <laughs> which was known as complexity in the economy. And when I read the first two pages, I was like, this is it. This is it. Like, this is exactly what I was looking for. And today I'm dedicating more of my time towards reading about complexity science than anything else. I also intend to do my PhD. I intend to do a part-time PhD uh, on that. 
uh, not because I want to, to do a PhD, but because now I, I, I have to learn it. And for so me, this is the future. So complexity economics or just complexity because they – one is a subset of, of another. And I know complexity is quite – you know it, it's a word – that has one definition, but in this context, it means so much more. I mean, you know, the brain is a an example of you know a, a complex system, or you know, the economy. There's all there are all yeah. these things that are complex systems. So, do you want to focus on complexity economics or just complexity in general? Well, I'm not really selected which branch I'm going to specialize in. Um, I don't think I want to do complexity economics because the the field of economics is under so much turbulence right now that if I th- I think that if I jump into it right now I might regret the decision in a few years down the line. Um, I don't have enough clarity to make that uh, calculated choice right now, and I like to calculate. Um, I'm more interested in how we can use complexity from the, from the perspective of designing systems. So, you know, you need to have like a certain um, system design element in it, because if you want to get these emergent properties out, then it depends on the environment in which you're immersed in. So how do you structure that environment? Right. How can you use that for, say, public policy? How can you use that to structure the way that a company is made? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm more going more towards the qualitative side to a certain extent. I'm, of course, very interested in learning how to do the simulations, but I think um, the time is right right now because we're seeing a lot of progress happening with um, evolutionary uh, behavior. There's a bunch of other sciences which are getting much more mature today. And I think those inputs are going to be very, very uh, consequential in the way that we define complexity in the future. So that's the, that's kind of like the angle I'm with right now. I haven't made like a specific decision as to whether I want to go that way, this way. But I do identify myself more as an economic sociologist and not a social economist. There's a difference between those, the two words. Uh, so I'm more of an economic sociologist because um, uh, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, capitalistic systems or any kind of system is based on culture. So I'd rather focus on that. Uh, economics is an output for me in that in that context. Um, what and if this is going to be a long question or a long answer, then perhaps we can we can skip it. But uh, is there anything that you're just really super excited about right now? It could be anything. It could be uh, you know this new flavor of ice cream that's come out from the shop down the road, <laughs> or it could be um, uh, you know new computer game or whatever you want. Is there anything like in the, that that is just well, really exciting you? Well, I think there's one thing that's really exciting me right now is the fact that um, I've recently been given the opportunity to present some of my ideas in front of audiences who have got a certain amount of gravitas. So when I say that, I'm talking about people who are, you know, professionals at a very high level, um, people who work in academia and stuff like that. And um, you must realize that academia is so entrenched in its own ivory talk and a construct when someone like me comes up and I'm an outsider, right? Because I'm doing this research by myself. I'm not really depending on anyone. I've written a book which reads like an academic textbook, but I don't have a PhD. Um, uh, I want to get one, but I want to get one for my own, <laughs> for my own reasons and not, not to prove something to someone. Um, and now I've recently been given the opportunity to kind of present some of my stuff um, on a couple of public platforms. Um, and it, I'm very excited to do that because firstly, um, I need the feedback to realize where I'm wrong, um, to realize which direction I need to focus more on, where are my weak points. Uh, and that for me is is, is some kind of a, an impetus for reincarnation. Mm-hmm. It's very, very important that I have that kind of feedback. Otherwise, I, I, I won't grow. 
Um, and to be able to do it in front of these people who can not just correct me because of the fact that they have so much more experience, but are willing to actually test these things with me. So I recently signed a contract with a, with a, with a bank over here in Paris where we're going to be experimenting with a lot of the a framework that I've made, which uses complexity science um, as uh, the base for doing change management in a big company. So, you know, they, I mean, they, they're very professional goals. I, I understand that. Um, but at the same time, I've put in a lot of time and effort to get to where I am um, and, and understand a lot of these things, which I had no training in. I had to learn it by myself. Uh, and the surprising thing is now I'm getting invited to business schools to go and give talks about it. <laughs> when the, the thing that I learned in a business school has been pretty much sweet fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> it's been useless. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> um, I know you, you've brought up a few books uh in this episode, uh, are there any uh, that you'd highly recommend or uh, t- to those um, listening in either complexity economics, history, or just in general that have been quite, uh, that have had quite an impact on your life? Um, one book that I would definitely recommend for economics is um, a book that was written, written by Lord Adair Turner, Between Debt and the Devil. Uh, I think that book had the most amount of influence in terms of helping me understand the, the debt-based capitalistic system in which we exist in. Um, and he's part of the Institute of New Economic Thinking, which is where I met uh, Brendan during one of the, the conferences that we had. So I, I, I'd really recommend that book. In terms of complexity, there's a new book that's been that's come out by um, Alan Kerman, uh, which is called Complexity and Evolution. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit of a dense read, you could say, but it's, it's certainly something that I recommend. Um, other books, um, if you, you, we spoke about, you know, expert generalism and stuff like that. Uh, there's this wonderful book which was written by E.O. Wilson, the Nobel Prize winner, which is known as Consilience. Okay, and con- Consilience. And Consilience is just um, an amazing book because this man is an absolute scholar. And he's written about the way ideas ex- are exchanged and how new ideas are created because of that. Um, using a lot of like little, you know, personal examples and case studies, uh, but written in, in, in a lovely narrative. So he's just got such a, a magical rhetoric. Um, and finally, uh, I don't know if you've got any kind of philosophical <laughs> um, inclinations, then there's a really good book, which is known as Soul Machine, that I'd highly recommend. It's a bit of a read as well. Uh, the author's name escapes me, but it's called Soul Machine. I think you can't Soul miss Machine. that if you Google yeah, no. it. So, And um, is there anything you'd like to say to the people listening out there? Any message in particular or uh, how can people get in touch with you if they have uh, any questions or if they just want to reach out? Um, The easiest way to get in touch with me is probably through LinkedIn because I use that a lot more than I use Facebook. (laughs) Um, um, So, you know, just just put in my my name in Google and you'll probably come across my LinkedIn thing or whatever. So it's easiest to get in touch with me that way. Um, if I have a message to anyone, oh, good Lord. Um, I'd say there's two things. I'd say first is, um, if you think the emperor's got no clothes on, it's probably true. So start developing a kind of, um, attitude to question things. Like if, if you don't understand something, just don't just be like, okay, I'll deal with it later. No, just take a second and, and figure out why it is you don't understand it or even if you understand it, why does it make why does it not make sense? And what what that normally does is it gives you like the impetus to to start 
digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you get into that, you'll get to an inflection point at one, you know, as you follow that trajectory, you get to an inflection point in which you find that you have to depart from your old ideas or you have to depart from maybe even a social circle because you realize that it doesn't make sense for you to hang on to that, that you have to burn a bridge sometimes. And at that point, you need to have a second um, ability, which is the ability to say, fuck it. And I think that that's very important because saying fuck it based on research, meaning that you've done your homework. <laughs> Fact-based okay, you don't say fuck it without saying but you, you, you base your, 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 your understanding on, on doing the homework. When you do that, um, it immediately makes you a bit of a contrarian. But being a contrarian sometimes is exactly what is required if you want to be able to develop your own personal um, train of thought. And I think that's one of the biggest things. To be able to bask in an, in an epiphany is probably one of the most wonderful things that uh, as humans we can experience. Uh, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, I've read this book uh, earlier last year called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind by this guy who um, founded this company called Mind Valley. His name is Vishen Lucky. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. I've heard him speak. Yeah. yeah, so he talks of this thing called the culture scape, and what I love about it is this is the metaphor that it generates in the mind that the the world in which we live is like the the culture in which we live in is you know like it's it's as real as the uh, the ground that we walk on. You know the rules that uh, society that society dictates, be it the seven day working week, you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We've got weekends. Um, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that, you know, we've got mm-hmm. monogamy, that all of this stuff can be just wrapped up into, you know, the culture scape. And some of these things can be questioned. And when you question these things, it can be, you know, earth shattering. Here's the, you know, the metaphor for, you know, like the very, la- the, the ground on which you walk, if not conceptually, it, it, uh, it shatters. And once that happens, you can really start to restructure your life and how you approach things. And, uh, it can be quite life changing, even though there's nothing. Nothing's changed except how you view the world. So um, your perception, exactly. I want so, to get yeah, a, that's uh, a. I'm going to get a. Um, I don't know if you've seen this picture. It's like a Banksy thing. It, uh, it's this. Uh, this monkey just like thinking about itself. Like, well, not thinking uh, about itself. Like it looks like it's questioning. And I just want to get this thing made uh, where it's that, and it says uh, question everything, and like some psychedelic you know, writing because, <laughs> and then I want to sell that on the, uh, on the website because I want it. And I think other people <laughs> might want that. So shameless plug, uh, check yeah, it out. I, it's I, on, think, it's not I think yet. it's a good, I think it's a good idea for a, for, for, for a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thinking monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. So, uh, I think those are two great messages, uh, to, to put out there. And, um, Carrie, I just want to uh, thank you again for taking the time and, um, Thanks for being on the show. Tom, thank you so much, man. I really enjoyed uh, doing this with you. Uh, good luck with uh, getting the podcasts on. I, I know you're, you're you're very enterprising, and this is your, your your own venture. I think it's I think it's really great what you're doing. It's uh, connecting minds and um, and sharing experiences. It's it's the way to go. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast. If you enjoyed this uh, episode or if you've enjoyed the other episodes, um, consider rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or whichever other podcasting app you use because it really does help with the success of this podcast or just share it with your friends or whatever. Uh, And if you'd like to support it, consider becoming a patron for Talk of Today at talkoftoday.com or at patreon.com slash talkoftoday. Getting a little bit muddled up here. 
And links to everything discussed will be in the show notes, including links to the globalcitizenship.today thing and the Chrome extension, which I have yet to name. And that's it. Thanks again.